Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of Logicast, the AWS News Podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined today, as always, by my colleague, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? I'm okay. I can't complain too much because my power is at least on right now. Well, let's hope it stays on uh, for around the next uh, 29 to 30 minutes so we can re- <laughs> complete the recording of uh, Season 2, Episode 10 of Logicast. But I know you have been plagued by power cuts recently. Mm, not fun. Substation's gone up in the town, so it's like, oh, great. As opposed to going down? <laughs> I suppose it's also gone down. I th- Gone up, gone down. Either way, it broke. Well, gone up, I'm envisioning it going up in flames. Going I think down, something I'm went bang. Of... I yeah. think something went bang, yeah. Mm. Yeah, not not fun in this day and age, lack of power. Um, but uh, we'll do our best to soldier on <laughs> and uh, record a full episode. So uh, if you're new to the podcast, every week I curate a list of AWS news, which I share once a week in my weekly AWS news roundup. And then John and I pick a subset of the articles from the news roundup that we want to talk about um, in the podcast. So we've got a set of articles this week um, that we're going to talk about. And the first one of those um, is about AWS Application Composer, which has gone into general availability. Application Composer was launched into preview um, at reInvent back in November, December time last year. Um, and it has now gone into general availability. So Application Composer allows you to visually build serverless applications quickly. So it's got a drag and drop interface um, for you to build out your serverless applications. So how does this work, John? So this is an interesting one. I know we spoke about this a little while back when um, it came out in preview and to plug the community builder thing straight away. I, again, heard about this on the on the, the, the channels that we're in for that. Someone's sort of putting this blog out to say it's now generally available. What this is, is this is two things kind of bundled up into one, right? As, as um, Werner said, if you've never worked with serverless before or microservices architecture and event buses and all the rest of it, it can be quite confusing to work out where events are coming from and going to and how they talk to each other and all the data flows and all that jazz. Especially if all you're looking at is a YAML file or if you've never done it before. So this does t- this solves for both of those, right? The first thing this does is gives you a drag and drop interface with up-to-date icons. I know that's a thing for you. Um, that you can just play with a canvas and put things together and you know i've got my api here my endpoints are slash this and slash that and whatever and they go to these lambdas and that talks to these dynamo tables and here's the permissions model and all the rest of it and it spits out a cloud formation template or a sam template depending on what's appropriate that you can then go and deploy right so you get what they call production-ready infrastructure as code. It's production-ready in that it works and you don't have to fiddle around with it and it just kind of does what it's supposed to do. That's really cool from a, an entry level getting going. We don't know what we're doing with it, but we know that we need to be using Lambda as an API gateway and Dynamo and all the rest of it because some clever architect has told us this and charged us a load of money and then gone away again. Right, wonderful. For me, what's more interesting is the other side of it. Much like you can with the CloudFormation Designer, but this isn't awful, you can take a SAM template or CloudFormation template and put it in, paste it in, and it will give you this really nice diagram of everything and where it's flowing and the permissions and so on and so on and so on. They've done this to such an extent that they have what they call, I think they call them hidden um, 
resources and that resources that you can't create through it, but it can still display them and show you what they're doing and where they talk to. The example that they use in the article is an I am role. So it's read only. You can't edit it in the canvas, but it shows you that it's a role for that particular API. That's great. That's brilliant because one of the things that we do as consultants is one of the first things we do when we onboard a customer is we deploy some diagramming software into their account so that we can get at least a high level view of what's going on. This is that. This is that use case, but more specific. So the customer, your new employer, whoever, has this big swath of infrastructure as code and you kind of want to get your head around what it's doing and maybe you don't want to read a 10,000 line you know, YAML template. If they're that big, you should be breaking them down. But you don't want to read several hundred lines of code. You know, you'd rather look at a diagram because obviously most people do. Shove it into this, get a diagram. Brilliant. Brilliant. Love it. I did see a diagram this morning, actually, something somebody had shared on LinkedIn and it had an old generation icon in there. I mean, it must have had about 20 or 30 icons on there and 20, you know, <laughs> 19 like or 29 hawk. of them were uh the current generation and there was just one glaring off the page at me and i just i don't even know what that diagram was about all i spotted was that old generation aws service icon on there and uh all right you're, you're like a hawk you're, you're laser eyed for them yeah yeah <laughs> well they stick out like a sore thumb <laughs> all of the new ones have a lovely consistent design and the old ones look really old-fashioned so they just stick out like a sore thumb but, it's uh... yeah it's no I, I i do get it it's what an old designer that i used to work with called design thinking and all that kind of consistent branding and all the rest of it yeah, so yeah. yes i get why it annoys you but i just find it funny it's just my ocd really it's uh these things jump off the page at me and then i can i no, I no longer know what the page is trying to convey because <laughs> uh, i'm so irritated by the fact that there's a <laughs> there's an old generation icon on there uh, for for listeners that this also bothers, I, I'll see if I can put it in the show notes. Again, I found through the community builder channels a um, a website that lists all the icons, and I think they're relatively up to date. So I'll see if we can link that in the show notes. Yeah, there is an icon toolkit that you can download from the AWS website as well. Um, perhaps not quite as convenient as the uh, the page that John is talking about because you can just load that page up and do a quick copy paste. Whereas the icon toolkit is a zip file with lots and lots of different versions of the icons in there um, but uh, you will of course if you download that icon toolkit have every available aws icon um from the uh, from the current um, icon set so um, not that this is particularly relevant to application composer um, but uh, if you've listened before you'll know that we do quite often digress so <laughs> uh, but it's more relevant than uh, many of our other tangents so uh, anyway moving on from uh, application composer uh, and on to cloud operations training. Um, so uh, we don't often talk about training on the podcast, um, but it's something that we all need. Um, it's something that we all do. Uh, it's a great way to learn about uh, AWS services, whether they are old or new. This particular um, article is about building cloud operations skills using the new AWS observability training. So observability is something that we talk about regularly on the podcast um, and the AWS um, observability portfolio is um, burgeoning for want of a better word. So there are lots and lots of new services, lots of enhancements to old services um, such as CloudWatch, um, lots of new services coming in like Amazon Managed Grafana, Amazon Managed Service 
for Prometheus, uh, etc. Um, so um, if you're not up to speed on AWS observability, then uh, I guess this training would be a great place for you to start. What are your thoughts on this, John? I mean, you just said everything I was going to say. Um, observability. Feel free to say it again. <laughs> <laughs> observability is a funny one it is and i know that's my intro to a lot of things but it's an odd one because there's this line between monitoring and observability right you talk about monitoring and observability in the same sentence quite often but they are kind of different things and people do mix them up quite regularly monitoring is your basics is, is it up is it down is it running has it stopped is the disc full that kind of stuff you know what we're all kind of used to from um historic setups observability is is going deeper into that to the extent it's got its own acronym ollie o11y ollie um and there's lots of tools and all the rest of it and it's just again it's a bit of a minefield but it's going deeper into the application so that you can say oh yeah there is a problem it's not causing a user impact right now but i can see a bottleneck here in this api call or there in that data lookup or or whatever right and because there's so many tools out there, you think, well, which, what do I pick? What do I do? Where do I go? I've got no idea. Help. And I think this is trying to kind of, yes, it's got an AWS flavor to it. And it's it's not going to recommend you go and use Datadog, for instance. Um, but it, it's saying that we have these tools, we have X-Ray, we have CloudWatch, which is being kind of expanded to do things like canary monitoring. And, and then Prometheus and Grafana, as you mentioned, and then to an extent, open search formerly known as elastic um and there's this enormous great kind of wedge of training where it talks about you know using the cloudwatch agent and synthetics and canaries and real user monitoring and uh, dashboards and alarms and things that we all know that we should be doing with things like cloud travel and flow logs that people don't do because it's hard so i think this is trying to help close that it's free training, which is great. It's five hours, which is a fairly meaty amount of training because very few people are going to be able to dedicate a whole half a day to doing some training. If you're able to do that, I'm envious. Please <laughs> tell me where you work. And, and uh, no, I'm not leaving you, Carl, don't worry. But um, I'm envious, um, you know, because not many people get the opportunity to do that. So it's it's good. It's very good. I like to see training. I like to see it coming from the, the horse's mouth because that's one of the things that AWS has not always been amazing at, particularly in the certification spaces. Yes, they will do training, but there's a reason that people go to people like Cloud Guru and Udemy and all the rest of it. It's because their training isn't always amazing. But this looks good. This looks specific, and I like specific training. And I was just scanning the article again to see whether or not you get a badge because we do all love badges. Um that's badges like pins as opposed to the uh, little animals, black and white animals, badgers, um, although they're quite cute as well. Um, uh, also endangered, actually. Uh, but uh, you won't get a badger by completing this course, but you may get a badge. Um, but it's not clear from the article whether you whether you will get a badge. But I think a lot of this AWS skill builder stuff, uh, they do have digital badges. Um, so one would assume that there is a, a AWS skill builder badge for completing um, the observability course um, or the observability training and uh, passing um, the knowledge check at the end of it. So uh, let's move on from observability training um, into serverless. Um, we talk a lot about serverless, um, but this particular article um, 
talks about recognizing some of the potential risks of going serverless on AWS Lambda. So we often talk about the benefits and the how-tos. We talk less about the risks um, of Lambda. Um, so uh, this particular article is talking about some of the security risks. And uh, I, before we start talking about it, I must caveat it that this one slipped through my third-party vendor filter that I normally apply uh, when selecting news articles. Hadn't noticed that it was actually a sales pitch um, for a Cisco product called Panoptica. We're not endorsing that Cisco product because we've never used it. Um, we're not saying that you shouldn't, we just don't know anything about it. Uh, but it is quite a good um, impartial article uh, until it gets to the pitch. Uh, but it mm -hmm. does highlight, um, you know, some um, some good uh, generic security issues that you should be concerned about um, if you're going to go serverless with Lambda. So, John, talk us through uh, some of these security concerns that are highlighted here. I don't think it's fair to say that we don't talk about it. We do, but granted, not as often as as the other stuff because it's it's a bit less interesting to a lot of people. But okay. Job one: uh, Lambda functions used to build applications. Well, yes, duh, obviously. Um, but the point is, it's as broad as it's long. If you needed to worry about security in a server-based application, just because it's gone serverless doesn't mean you don't have to, in the same way that just because you're running it in the cloud doesn't mean you don't have to. Okay, It can be processing sensitive data, PII, health data. You might have to worry about ISO compliance, GDPR, HIPAA compliance, um, PCI, all of that kind of lovely acronyms that basically mean you need to hire auditors. Um if your applications are hosting that, hiring that, using that, whatever, um, just because it's in a Lambda doesn't mean you don't have to worry about that either. If anything, you have to worry about it more because of just the nature of how they run. Okay. The next thing is the shared uh, the shared responsibility model. I haven't said this for a little while, so we have to mention it every once in a while because if we don't talk about the, response, yeah, the shared responsibility model, it's bad juju. Got to talk about it occasionally. You're mute. I'm on mute. We spoke about it last yeah. week. Did we? Had okay. our, yeah, we had a whole article about it. Oh, fair Although enough. last week does seem like an eternity ago. But, uh, there <laughs> it doesn't it just. <laughs> um, but yeah, under the shared responsibility model for security, because obviously there's different kind of lenses to it. Amazon is or AWS is responsible for security of the cloud. That's physical data center, all that kind of thing. You are responsible for security in the cloud as an AWS customer. Okay. And this is this always comes back down to the S3 thing. Is you left it unsecured, that's not their fault. You did it. It's a little bit harsh, but that's kind of just the rule, right? They cannot be going in. They could. They won't. And securing your workloads for you because they don't necessarily know what's appropriate. So again, you need to make sure that your lambdas are secure. And what does this mean? This means secure coding practices. This means proper IAM permissions and not using star on admin rights so that it can just do anything because that's just ridiculous. It means things like um, encrypting the data at rest where it's not done automatically for you. It's things like making sure you're using TLS connections where it's not done for you. It's things like, what else is there in there? Um, yeah, it's all that kind of stuff. And then on the other hand of things, it's also things like restricting your concurrency. That's less about data exfil and more about me people using lambdas to mine bitcoin right but if you're not controlling the concurrency properly it can just run away with you up to a service limit which is hundreds of thousands of invocations so if you're not controlling that then again you're on a hiding for nothing quite frankly 
Moving a bit further down, it talks about, again, authentication and access control. So if your lambdas are just in the back of the back end, that's a lot less obvious, but you do still need to worry about making sure that only things that need to be able to invoke that lambda can invoke that lambda. Um, and if it's kind of front-end facing, be that through a direct endpoint or via API gateway, again, it's making sure that only sort of the routes that are, are meant to be invoking it can invoke it. And it's also making sure that that lambda can a permission model that that role can't be used to pivot and do something else because again that's a key thing in security is pivoting it's i've broken into this one thing what does it have access to what can i now move around to and and go over there right so it's making sure that people can't pivot out of your corrupted lambdas and then again i am blur okay uh data injection everyone knows what sql injection is or you certainly should do um, so it's just making sure that you're kind of hardening against that sort of thing in your coding practices it's getting your logging and your monitoring sorted out again so that if you do have runaway function invocation or a lambda talking to something that it shouldn't you know about it and kind of shutting that down um and then yeah as as it says again the security is shared responsibility so you cannot rely on aws to do all of it for you there are some good defaults. There's some sensible defaults. And yes, you don't necessarily have to worry about the data center security, but you can't just write really insecure code and put it on the internet and go, great, that's fine. It's in AWS, it's secure, because it isn't. You do need to take responsibility for what you have built. So as we mentioned, this this is a Cisco-sponsored post, but are there any um, cloud-native tools for checking this kind of thing? Um, so yeah, the Cisco one, um, on the coding side of things, there's a few, so code guru, I think does it in AWS. There's other like Sona cloud and scrutinizer and those sorts of things will, um, test your code for you and they will give you security reports and things, um, for kind of web services and stuff. Yeah. There's kind of like white hat probing tools and things that you can use. None come to mind, but I've used a few of them. Um, and at the end of the day, you can always just go and hire some pen testers and, and see what they find. Hmm. Cool. Okay, let's uh, move on um, from serverless security into monitoring. And uh, we found serverlessly. this article. <laughs> <laughs> monitoring serverlessly, yeah, um, and securely. Uh, so we found this interesting article from Cloudinaut about AWS monitoring with EventBridge. So we normally don't think about EventBridge uh, when we talk about monitoring. We think about CloudWatch. Um, but uh, this article um, shares some Terraform code snippets um, for monitoring for certain events um, that uh, can be generated um, uh, by EventBridge. Um, so tell us about this, John. So we'll do a definition in case people aren't familiar. EventBridge is an event bus, right? It's just stuff goes into it and you can listen to it and do things in response, okay? Almost every service publishes something to EventBridge. It might not necessarily be what you're looking for, but almost everything publishes something to EventBridge, right? Lambda publishes to EventBridge. Um, IAM publishes to EventBridge. You know, pick a service and it pretty well all publishes to EventBridge. So that's that, right? You can subscribe to EventBridge and trigger either SNS topics or emails or lambdas, which is the more interesting thing, to EventBridge so that you can, in response to something happening, do something either about it or send a notification or, or whatever. A lot of what I've used EventBridge for in event-driven architectures is things... Uh, 
like fire and forget jobs that you then need to know when they finished that kind of thing like you submit a batch processing job it'll take a few minutes and then instead of having to poll for that job is it still there is it still going is you just listen to eventbridge and that fires off the lambda service and says this is finished and then you can go do the thing with it right the the example i like to use what i've done before is um transcoding user generated content so they've uploaded a video you need to transcode it into formats that you can then ship and then you need to tell your database that it's then transcoded and available to be shipped so you send it off to um elastic transcoder or elemental media convert and then you subscribe to the event to eventbridge and eventbridge has that event to say it's finished and then when it's finished you can go off and update your database with a lambda right that's kind of a lot of what i've used eventbridge for but yes it is perfectly capable of doing monitoring so things like snapshots, have they been done? Um, has an SSM task finished? Has an ECS task that should be running, has that stopped? You know, that kind of thing. And then to your other point about security, you can do image scans in ECR of your Docker images, and you can monitor that through EventBridge. So you can see whether there have been severity contents and all the rest of it. And if you've got a critical or a high that's come out in the report, you could have that send an email to say, by the way, you've got some problems, you need to go and look at them. So that's kind of quite cool. Cool. Yeah, I like the snapshot one myself. Um, I uh, I spotted that when I was scrolling through this article earlier. Um, and, uh, you know, as I mentioned at the start, there's uh, some useful um, Terraform code snippets. Um, if you actually want to implement some of these, um, should just be a case of copying and pasting those code snippets in, um, modifying whatever parameters you need to. It's um, worth saying yeah. that it's not the Terraform that's interesting, right? Because that JSON can be lifted and shifted into JSON-based CloudFormation templates or quite easily modified to be YAML-based. So that event pattern is the interesting thing. The Terraform itself is kind of neither here nor there. Yeah, cool. Okay, uh, let's move on to the last article um, for this week's episode, um, which is... Um, back onto the subject of AWS's own silicon. So we've mentioned uh, Graviton, AWS's um, ARM-based silicon, um, in a number of episodes. Um, this week, there's an article on DevOps.com about AWS delivering on the latest Graviton 3 price performance promise. Um, I think this is off the back of some recently launched um, instances, the M7G and R7G instances, which I can't remember if we spoke about before, but certainly they made it onto Briefly. the... Uh, the news roundup in a, in a previous week. Um, so uh, yeah, lots and lots of instances now available um, on AWS's own silicon, uh, which they claim has a much better price performance ratio um, than uh, other manufacturers silicon. So uh, what, what can you tell us about the, uh, about this, John? I generally quite like arm, right? You and I are both sitting here using Apple silicon, which is arm. Um, I like ARM. I write my lambdas to generally use ARM because the price to performance ratio is just better. It just is, provided that the workload is adequate, right? These M7 and R7G instances, I believe, are memory optimized on the M and read write optimized on the R. I might be wrong. I might be wrong. What do we think? I think I'm, I'm whatever. Their, their memory and their IO optimized, that kind of thing. Yeah. M7 are general purpose uh, for general purpose workloads such as application servers, microservices, gaming servers, mid-sized data stores, and caching or caching fleets. <laughs> and uh, the uh, R7G instances are a great fit for memory-intensive workloads 
such as open source databases, in-memory caches or caches, uh, mm. and real-time big data analytics. So why isn't the M memory optimal? That's just whatever. Okay. AWS rubbish naming taking effect here. Um, but yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Well, is it R for RAM? I don't know. Oh, I, don't know what the M, I don't know what the M stands for in uh, in, in general purpose. No idea. Mm, general purpose. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what shall I use that for? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of cool things here, right? So the first thing that the article talks about, and it's a little bit outside of our wheelhouse, but I'm a nerd generally, is it's using the latest version of um, RAM, DDR5, which for those unfamiliar runs at clock speeds, something like two times higher than DDR4, which was two times faster than DDR3. It's running at something like 5,000 megahertz or megatransfers a second. Um, it's, you know, it's running at mad speeds. And then on top of that, extra bandwidth, again, it's like 50% wider memory buses. So you can just move more data and deal with it more quickly, which is great. We like that. That's very good. The previous instances of Graviton would have been using DDR4, so that's obviously a big thing there. Is um, And those of you that are using Intel 12th gen versus 11th gen processors, you'll know what I mean, right? You've gone from kind of this level of performance to this level of performance from not an enormous change, generally speaking. Um, so that's really cool. ARM struggles a little bit in some cases with general purpose workloads because in my experience, and this is kind of my view, but an ARM chip generally is a whole bunch of specific circuitry glued together right you'll have a neural engine you'll have a this engine or that engine or whatever but it's general purpose computing power is lower than just an x86 intel or amd cpu it just tends to be so they are clearly making a case for it by making it i don't know cheaper possibly for the general purpose workloads and the fact that it runs on faster memory is is definitely going to help there on top of that of course um Yes, it is delivering better price to performance because it's saying it's it's 25% better this and it's 50% better that and so on and so on. Um, for me, what always becomes quite interesting is they run these ARM chips out on EC2 first on these sort of specific instances and then give it a few months and that trickles into the Lambda and the Fargate world and then all of a sudden everyone can use it. And again, you're not having to worry about using these M and these R specifics because they don't have there's not an m7g micro as far as i know uh, they start at like a medium or a large or something like that i think medium yeah there's not a micro it's not going to sit free tier but if but there is a t4g micro which is probably not free tier now but it will kind of get there eventually right so when they get trickle down again to the lower to the lower tiers and trickle down into lambda and fargate then everyone gets to benefit from this from better price performance lower price generally for your general purpose workloads and everyone can nerd about nerd out about arms and more yeah and of course price is a, a big one at the moment um with everyone looking to tighten their belts um particularly if they were backed by silicon valley bank i suppose um uh, <laughs> although <laughs> i did hear that the uh, the uk arm is being rescued by hsbc um Apologies if you're listening to this in the future. This is a current uh, topic that's uh, going on in the news right now. Um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, you know, containing cloud costs is uh, is high on everyone's agenda. And if you're running large fleets of EC2s, then you know, potentially reducing uh, your compute cost by 25% by moving to a Graviton instance 
could generate enormous savings um, for your business. And of course, sustainability, one of the other topics that we, that we cover off um, regularly on the, on the podcast. Um, if you're using less energy, it's also going to be better for your sustainability credentials. So, um, you know, lots of great reasons for moving to, uh, to arm based graviton processors. It's very so, worth saying as well that if your workloads themselves maybe aren't ARM compatible, uh, the databases can be, right? RDS will run quite happily on ARM instances and you can just migrate to them. Yeah, I say that. It's a lot easier said than done, but there's no reason not to because you're just using that service. Yeah, I mean, anything, databases or, you know, any of the serverless stuff that you mentioned, lambdas, etc. you have the option to run them on, on Graviton. So, um no reason why not, not to. Yeah, yeah exactly. why not? So that brings us to the end of the articles for this week, uh, to the end of episode 10 of season two of Logicast. Um, we're going to be taking a short break next week, so uh, we're not going to be producing our regular uh, Logicast episode. Um, we are all out of the office at our annual log-off event in Barcelona. Um, so we are hoping to record a, a mini special um, uh, uh, on location in Barcelona, um, but uh, we're going to need to figure out the tech and the logistics of that. So uh, watch this space, and hopefully we'll be producing a special um, with a number of other Logicast Carter team members uh, featuring as guests um, and we'll be back with our regular episode um, in a couple of weeks so uh, thanks for listening that was Logicast season two episode 10 we'll see you again next time